today on Ag News Daily. And so it's those long-term, you know, slow impacts too that I think we will will continue to learn and we'll continue to navigate and support uh, our farmers and ranchers through. Happy Friday, listeners. It's September 23rd here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Tanner, how are you doing this morning? I'm great. It is uh, a little bit rainy here, so those that got an early jump on harvest are having to take the day off, but should clear up here within the hour, and it will be a good, chilly fall Friday day. The weather here in Missouri is pretty much the same. We got a good rain shower last night, and it's cooled off again after pushing the cold front out last week. You know, just to jump right into it, Cassidy, continuing to talk weather, that tropical rainstorm that we've been talking about on the northern coast of South Africa could eventually shift headed into the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico. It may undergo some rapid strengthening due to the forecast coming from AccuWeather. The meteorologists there are warning that the tropical forecast team is stating to begin taking caution for this looming threat. After earlier this week, they noticed the tropical storm was growing in intensity. Now it has the potential to make a damaging strike on the United States. The system is being dubbed as the Invest 98L by the National Hurricane Center, remaining disorganized at this time due to its proximity coming off of South America. But The strong winds are causing disruption in the atmosphere around it, and they expect it to become the next hurricane of this season. The next name on the list is Hermine, H-E-R-M-I-N-E, and that is more than likely what this storm will become. However, there are other disturbances in the eastern Atlantic that might compete to get to the name Hermine. So after that are Ian and Julia. So Cassidy, we will see here what these tropical storms shape up to be and which one gets the hurricane name first. And before we get to those names, Tanner, we still have Hurricane Fiona that we've been watching. It's now a Category 3 storm and it's headed towards Canada, expected to make landfall sometime this evening. Yeah, I saw that. I was... I didn't want to pull the map up and sound silly and foolish, but it seems kind of strange that a hurricane could hit Canada. I agree. I was very surprised when I saw that's where it's expected to hit this afternoon. Well, hitting another state, California has already set itself up for future energy failures by banning the sale of gas-powered cars starting in 2035. But now the state is trying to set a deadline to eliminate the sale of commercial diesel trucks as well. They're preparing the ban on sale of commercial diesel trucks by 2040, requiring trucks entering ports and rail yards to be zero emission vehicles by 2035. Some companies such as Walmart and Amazon would have until 2042 to convert their truck fleet to electric. California does not have the infrastructure to support such a plan, according to the vice president of the Trucking Association in California. It's hardly a surprise, even though uh, it looks like California is trying to push this through. Their current infrastructure is struggling to support its population of 39 million. They narrowly avoided rolling blackouts like we reported upon earlier this year, Cassidy. But 
they are trying to instate this legislation that will ban any fuel-driven trucks, especially diesel-powered, by 2040. This comes again as the attempt to transition to all electric vehicles, which uh, I hate to say it, my personal opinion doesn't look like it's going to be successful. But there's the latest coming out of California. Well, Tanner, that's a good update. And I've had a lot of conversations with some farmers and ranchers lately complaining about their feed trucks that have new emission regulations on them and how horribly they've been working. So I wonder how great non-fuel powered trucks will work in the end. Yeah, it's uh, all for this target of zero emissions, and uh, there could be other or better solutions. I don't see the, I mean, 2035 is not far out, so it will, uh, that will be here before we know it. Well, moving back to the Midwest, I have some news coming out of Missouri today. Mizzou has broke ground on a new expansion for their vet medicine laboratory. They have $30 million slated for renovation and expansion. This is a big headline for the world of agriculture because their lab has a lot to do with detecting and testing emerging animal diseases like ASF, foot and mouth, avian influenza, rabies, tons of things that we struggle with a lot or that we always have our eye on. So this will be a good expansion for the school and the world of agriculture. Yeah, it is. That kind of leads right into my next headline that Merck Animal Health will acquire Venice. So they announced that they have they signed a definitive agreement under which they will acquire Venice from its founders and shareholders. Venice is an innovator in virtual fencing for rotational grazing and livestock management. The acquisition is expected to be completed in the third quarter of 2022, which uh, is rapidly approaching an end here, Cassidy, and will be subject to customary closing conditions. Specific terms have not been disclosed at this time. However, Venice, being a privately held company, provides the enhanced technology for producers and ranchers to track and monitor and manage the movement of cattle throughout high-tech platform with virtual fencing solutions. So it'll be interesting, Cassidy, to see. Maybe we could reach out and see if there's a, a representative we could get on here to talk more about what Venice has to offer. But the president of Merck Animal Health, Rick, said Venice is a natural fit for Merck's animal health growing portfolio of products and animal intelligence offerings that will now include identification, traceability, and monitoring products. So the new technology will give cow-calf producers the ability to track their cattle and move them from pasture to pasture virtually. So kind of neat to see those two companies joining forces. Yes, Tanner, I saw that article this morning too, and I was super excited to see it, not only because I have reached out to Vince in the past to see if they would come on, but also because it kind of explained why they may not come on because they probably signed a non-disclosure with Merck on this deal. <laughs> but I do have one of their competitors in this space slated to come on in a few weeks called No Fence. So it'll be exciting to see what their reaction is to this news and how they're going to deal with competing with such a big name like Merck. Oh, yeah, that was good. I'm glad that you had worked on getting that lineup together. So it sounds like I might have stole one of your stories. I'll jump right into my next cattle-related story. Federal prosecutors have recommended that Washington State cattleman Cody Easterday is to spend at least 10 years and one month in prison for his fraud scheme that cost Tyson Fresh Meats and other victims at least $244 million. The Justice Department filed a memo with the U.S. District Court in eastern Washington 
said the theft was staggering and under the standard sentencing guidelines recommended that he serve between 121 and 151 months or up to 12 years, seven months in prison. The scheme began to unravel in late 2020 when Tyson announced it was correcting financial results with the Securities and Exchange Commission for its beef segment that included fiscal years 2017 through 2020. Tyson discovered the misappropriation of company funds by one of its suppliers. The court documents later revealed the supplier to be Easter Day, who was charging Tyson for the costs of buying and feeding as many as 200,000 cattle that never existed. He pled guilty in 2021 to the ghost cattle scheme, and his sentencing has now been delayed three times as they continue to decipher the mess. So uh, more to come, but that is the recommended sentencing for Easter Day. Well, that will be something to keep our eye on, Tanner. I have some news coming out of Texas. The Cattlemen's Beef Board has announced that they plan to invest about $38.5 million into different programs for beef promotion, research, consumer information, industry information, foreign marketing, and producer communications. This will all be during the fiscal year 2023, and some of the organizations they're looking to invest in include NCBA, Foundation for Meat and Poultry Research, Cattlemen's Beef Board, National Institute for Animal Agriculture, and a lot more. So this will be a big investment that will probably help propel the beef industry as a whole forward a lot. Yeah, it sounds like it. Well, did you have any more news for today or should I jump into the way markets open this morning? Go right ahead, Tanner. Let's see how they look. Well, right away this morning, it looked like uh, most of the active corn contracts, beans, and wheat are all starting down double digits, having some losses with a mostly red commodity board. Uh, before we get into those, the Dow Jones is lower, gold is lower, crude oil is lower, but the U.S. dollar is higher, which makes sense for a little bit of a gloomy day on the markets. December corn was down 14 cents at 6.74 and a quarter here Friday. Soybeans November contract was down 18 and a half cents here at 14.38 and a half. Wheat, I said, also was down. Looks like December Kansas City wheat down 14 cents at 9.65 and a half. Uh, pulling back from the original high there. When switching over to the livestock side of things, live cattle also red on the board. December contract 148.62 and a half down seven cents. Feeder cattle is green, but just barely at a half cents up to 178.0 and a quarter. Lean hogs also down a penny at December contract 84 and three quarters. So pretty much mostly red. As we open up the markets today on this Friday episode, Cassie, who do we get to have as a conversation today? Well, Tanner, excited to share some news from my future home, the Pacific Northwest today, talking with Jonathan Sandu of the Oregon Department of Agriculture on their wildfires and other natural disasters that have hit lately. Listeners, we're here with Mr. Jonathan Sandu from the Oregon Department of Agriculture, Assistant Director there, to talk a little bit about not only the wildfires, but all of the natural disasters that have been hitting his area lately. Thank you so much for joining us, Jonathan. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be on. 
Well, I guess we'll just jump right in. I know a lot of things have been happening in the Pacific Northwest lately. Can you give us an idea of what it looks like right now and how bad the fires really are? Sure. And that's, that's a big topic of conversation at this time of year. Um, I think most of, most of Oregonians will say we kind of have a fifth season out here, wildfire season between, you know, August, September leading into fall time. Uh, but I think just to kind of give, give your listeners some context, uh, you know, Oregon's a pretty diverse state. We grow over 220 commodities, um, produce some of the highest quality specialty crops in the world. And we are very geographically diverse, um, from the high deserts in the east, uh, eastern part of the state to, you know, kind of the fertile Willamette Valley to the, to the coastal regions and seafood productions. And so, when we have these natural disasters, uh, wildfires, extreme heat, uh, historic droughts, uh, we have a lot of commodities that are impacted in various ways, uh, feel different pressures at different times of years, and, you know, have different market impacts all throughout their production systems. And so I, I think I'll start back, you know, really just putting it in, into context when 2020 uh hit, we had over 2,000 fires, uh, 1.2 million acres burned in that year. Um, I think we had over 3,000 structures lost, and it was a pretty significant wildfire event uh, during that year. A lot of, lot of rural fire districts, a lot of emergency management planning, had a lot of lessons learned through that time period. And so you fast forward to, to this year when we've had, you know, extreme fire weather, uh, conditions that were conducive to what we had in 2020 that could have fueled, you know, huge spreads. We had, we've, we've had a lot of fires that spread, but, uh, you know, in 2022 this year for wildfires, you know, we have 18 fires burning just over 300,000 acres. Uh, and a lot of that, you know, is by, by chance of weather, but then also a lot of planning, a lot of, um, you know, farmers and ranchers knowing what to do now in the event of fires, getting animals and, and equipment out of the way and being able to to respond on that community level. So that was going to be one of my first curious questions is, you know, it, it sounds like you mentioned this is a season. It's something that's been a part of Oregon agriculture for quite a while. Are there resources locally or, or through organizations that Oregon farmers and ranchers could utilize to help better prepare for instances like this? Oh, that's a good question, Tanner. A lot of, in Oregon, a lot of fire management is, is, well, one, it's very complex because we have the state uh, forestry departments and then we have USDA through the forestry, um, U.S. Forest Service that manages lands. We have BLM lands and then we have these private lands that all, uh, kind of checkerboard with each other. And so the farmers and ranchers, especially in these rural communities, have rural fire districts where they they have come together, um, acquired assets, then doing trainings, uh, doing community events to be able to help prepare folks, but also then interfacing with the state and federal partners to try to be able to manage those fires when they're jumping jurisdictions. Uh, that has been one point that has been constantly changing, too, is how those jurisdictions inter- interact with each other. Um, but they do have resources through, um, you know, through FEMA and through, through other, uh, state, state entities, our OEM, which is an Oregon emergency management, uh, agency to, to try to get some of these, you know, fire preparedness, 
infrastructure in place, you know, plans in place. Some, some can be con- kind of controversial, uh, depending on where you live and, and how you, how you view, you know, the, the state's role in terms of being able to set up some of these, uh, fired, you know, what they call the defensible space, um, and maps that show where the fire can be intense. But, you know, all throughout that is a lot of trying to get education out there, resources, you know, just constantly preparedness. And Jonathan, I know from what you said, this year's fires aren't quite as bad because of different techniques and things that farmers and ranchers are doing. But what is the safety aspect like? How many people have been evacuated? How many people have been harmed? And is it going to get towards an end or is it going to continue into the fall? So that's, uh, I, I will say it's ongoing. Um, and so it's hard to tell, well, you know, exactly how many folks have been impacted right now. Um, when you're in real time, you know, the, the data is always changing, but, uh, about a week ago, two weeks ago, we had, we had the, again, those perfect conditions that pushed one, one particular fire kind of, uh, just east of, of Eugene, which is in the central part of the state. Um, and they evacuated a, a town called Oak Ridge, um, population about 5,000 folks. Um, it's a, it's a pretty rural area. Um, but, the big difference, I think the contrast there between 2022 and 2020 was we have a level one, level two, level three, right? Uh, evacuation orders. And so they moved the whole town to a level two, probably 12, 14 hours before that event was really going to pick up speed. And so folks had ample warning, ample time to get out and they weren't evacuating in the middle of the night with wildfire literally raining down upon their home. Uh, like folks did in 2020. So just that level of preparedness, uh, really did help folks. Yes, they were impacted. They had to evacuate. Um, but I think the structures and the lives lost will be a lot different this year than, than two years ago. Address the last part of your question of, of, are we coming to the end of the season? This tends to be kind of when cooler weathers come in, the, the rains return. Um, but you know, wildfires, they, they will smolder. They will burn all the way into wintertime. Um, and, and we'll have flare ups all throughout. Nothing that usually causes mass evacuations or, um, big concerns, but it does, that season is pretty long because those fires will burn in, burn in trunks and roots and, uh, last for quite a while. Well, that's good news that it's going to be a more favorable result to a, a poor experience. Obviously it's considered part of a natural, a natural disaster, but in our pre-conversation real quickly, you mentioned that there's more than just wildfires happening in your area. Could you tune our listeners into what else farmers and ranchers are battling? And these all kind of compound on each other. Uh, you know, these natural disasters feed in, uh, one, one into another. They, they add intensity. They add scale to all of them. And so if we look back into 21, uh, last, you know, during the last crop year, we had historic levels of drought um a hundred percent of the state of oregon was a d2 or greater drought conditions 75 percent of our state our land areas were in d3 and greater and 20 25 percent of that i think it was actually 26 percent of it was a d4 which is the highest level of drought conditions um which you know strains water availability, dries all the brush around, dries up the crops, dries up these defensible spaces that you would have for wildfires. But then there's also the crop impacts. Um, and then in 21, we also had what we, what we out in the, out in the West here referred to as the heat dome, um, which is a multiple day event where we had 115 plus degree weather, 
you know, that's 35 above normal for us out here for a few days. But what was truly devastating uh, was the nighttime temperatures barely dropping below 95 degrees. And, you know, we grow a lot of fresh berries, blueberries, cane berries, you know, blackberries, raspberries, those types of uh, berries. They were raisins uh, during that heat wave out, out on the bushes and the vines. And so you you just you can feel that dryness and, um, you know, add then the fire intensity, the year after year compounding effects of, of drought uh, just fuels those wildfires even more. Uh, impacts irrigation ability, impacts, you know, crop production, cycling, but then also over, you know, probably above all of these, you know, the human health and safety element of it. Um, you know, we, there's a lot of response that was done to the extreme heat, the smoke to protect, you know, not only the farmers and ranchers out there, the farm hands, the farm workers, and all those kind of involved throughout the whole production system. Jonathan, I think this is such an interesting conversation because we've been talking about the Texas drought and the Southern drought all summer long. And we don't really think about the Northwest having the same issues that we do. And it kind of gives us a different perspective. So thank you for that. Yeah. And, and, you know, we, we actually looked at during the 2021 year, you know, the 2012 drought down in the Texas area and the livestock response, the, you know, the availability of forage, what happens when folks are, you know, reducing herd sizes because they can't be able to feed them or move them to different grazing grounds. We had, we had ranchers who were putting livestock on their wintering grazing grounds in June and July because that was where the only green forage was. Um, and so those are, those are really, you know, everything just kind of builds on top of each other. I'll say in 2022, the numbers look better, right? We have, fewer acres on fire we have fewer uh you know a smaller percentage of our land mass in in these severe drought categories but that stress that living memory it all kind of builds up and uh you can just you can tell folks are exhausted they're uh you know it, it weighs on it weighs on everyone out here and across the country as as different pressures push on everyone well, that's that's why we wanted to have this conversation is obviously we reported on the, the massive size of, of the fire early last week. But also just to remind our listeners how connected agriculture is. But what what is something here as we wrap up this conversation? Would you like to share with the listeners to kind of put it into perspective as to how important these issues are throughout the nation? So I'd use an or an example of, of terms of how important they are. Uh, in response to the to the drought and to the fires of 2021, um, our state alone invested over a hundred million dollars into drought and natural disaster, like almost infrastructure and assistance packages. Um, that is a historic investment for you know a little state of Oregon to make, um, you know, using our state funds. And we stood up a, a one a very unique one-time emergency assistant program uh, to kind of almost act as a, as a bridge gap, a band-aid to the, to the federal programs that we're rolling out later this or right now, but that rolled out this year for those crop years. Um, and we moved, I mean, we, we invested $19.5 million through direct assistance to folks who had experienced, um, you know, either, Damage, you know, crop loss, you know, livestock loss, whatever it may be. And that's pretty significant because we have to keep these, you know, we have to keep our farmers and ranchers solvent. We have to keep them going till the next year. Um, and that's true across the whole country, right? We, you know, there's, there's a lot of 
smaller, you know, family sized farms and ranches that, you know, without their, without that annual income, without those, you know, paychecks, when those, when that gets disrupted, it can be pretty devastating. Um, and, and unfortunately, or fortunately we were able to, to meet that gap with some, uh, some very unique, some state federal or state funding to try to help, you know, at least the folks here in Oregon stay, stay in business and keep on and, you know, hopefully keep the generational cycle going for these farms and ranches. Um, and, and then on the other part of that, the market side of that is just, you know, all these agricultural markets are connected. Um, you know, what, what a natural resource of pressures happen in the Midwest and the South and the Northwest here. They all kind of feed into each other. Um, and how we, you know, we supply a lot of the cover cropping seeds. We supply a lot of, um, you know, the fresh produce and, and, and vegetables throughout the, throughout the system as well. You know, and specialty crop seeds. And when those seeds, you know, kind of get, uh, a little bit more uh, diminished or, you know, the yields are down that, that has an impact throughout the entire supply chain. It might not feel like it right now, but, you know, year after year, those, those impacts will be felt. Um, and, you know, maybe as a clipper or, or, or for your, for your own knowledge too, but, uh, we, we're the, we're the number one producing state for Christmas trees, live Christmas trees. And we have one of, one of our producers who produces a lot and exports a lot of Christmas trees, his seedlings burned up in those 2020 fires. And that's a seven or eight year crop. He won't feel the economic impact for that. The market won't feel the economic or availability impact for seven or eight years later. Um, well out of kind of memory or, or ability to recall exactly why all of a sudden the Christmas tree prices maybe, maybe fluctuating or, um, you know, maybe by that individual you know, Christmas tree farmer has, has a different economic outlook than what he did, what he was hoping for, uh, seven, eight years ago. Right. And so it's those long term, you know, slow impacts too that I think we will, we'll continue to learn and we'll continue to navigate and support uh, our farmers and ranchers through. Well, Jonathan, I really appreciate your perspective and I know our listeners do too. So thank you so much for joining us today. Well, I appreciate the time and, uh, Always, always glad to, to share the Oregon and Northwest perspective. Always great to get a perspective from the other side of the country. Hopefully we'll be having more of those soon once I get up there to get more news from that part of the nation. Yeah, I don't get out of central Iowa very often, so it's fun to talk to people around the country. Listeners, hopefully you enjoyed that. Obviously, if you have guests or good connections as such send them to ag news daily find us on all the social media platforms but most importantly have a good friday and a great weekend and and what do you say casty should we let the listeners go let's let them go